What is up, y'all? This is Shake, Tej, and Chris, and welcome to the Leopard Lads. We are uh, breaking down. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for the award. Episode number 13 or 12 or whatever it is. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Thinking in Bets, which is a book writ by, written by Annie Duke, and it is... Um, it dives into decision making under uncertainty. Um, Annie Duke is a, I think she has a degree in um, cognitive science or psychology or something like that. Um, and she's also a poker player. So she has uh, some very interesting insights on decision making um, and the psychology behind it. And I'd say the rough thesis of the book is that um, every decision um, leads to some probabilistic outcome. Um, we can never guarantee based on our decision what's going to happen. So in that sense, um, you're always dealing with uncertainty. And humans essentially have a lot of biases where when they make a decision, they assume that whatever the outcome is, is directly tied back to the decision they made. Um, and so she kind of walks through how you should really think about your decisions as more probabilistic, such that you don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, when you make a decision. So it's closer to poker where um, you're making a de decision on what you should bet based on the cards you have, but you don't know what the cards everyone else has, what the dealer is going to deal. Um, and so you have to learn to deal with thinking probabilistically. Um, and yeah, so we want to talk about that on levers. One, because uh, I think it was a really interesting book and I want to riff about it with my friends. And two, uh, I think it is um, the paradigm of thinking about decision making probabilistically uh, can add a lot of leverage uh, to your life and how you make decisions. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I I didn't read the book, but I um, I started thinking this way more. I noticed after I read another book you recommended, "Fooled by Randomness," and I always like I always find myself saying things to Shani like, "Well, this is more like what's more probable that." that this happens or this happens, you know? Um, and it can, yeah, it's definitely like a useful heuristic to think in probabilities. I think one thing um, I'd add right off the bat is um, this sort of, not a fallacy, but like a tendency for humans to think about how good their decisions were based on the outcomes, um, which can be really harmful um, over the short run, right? Like that makes sense to an extent, if you can measure um, how your decisions affect uh, whatever outcome you're targeting over the long run. Because if you, for example, in, in poker, right? Like it's a sort of a classic um, expected value example where if you make the right bets over the long term, which is say you assume you're pegging the probability correctly at like 55, 60% that this is the right bet, over a thousand hands, you're gonna come ahead, right? Um, but saying that an individual event has a 60% likelihood of happening and then it doesn't happen doesn't mean it was a bad bet or it was the wrong decision, right? It just means that your, um, your sample um, of outcomes is, is too small. Um, what I think is also interesting is, um, I actually don't think it's fully true that um, humans do totally um, measure um, the legitimacy of their decisions based on outcomes. And a particular example is this, um, this fallacy or this bias in psychology, there's a few names, but 
be called self-serving bias, can be called the fundamental attribution error. And it basically says that um, when you make a decision, when you do a thing um, and the outcome is good, you attribute that outcome to your own dispositional advantages over the world. You're like, I'm the best. I'm the best in the world. I'm so good at making decisions. I'm so good at executing. Um, and that's an ego defense mechanism, right? Like we're humans. We have these mental models. We want self-preservation. We want to feel good about ourselves. It allows, our, allows us to continue to execute in the world. But then on the flip side, the more dangerous, well, maybe not more dangerous, but equally dangerous is when things go against us, when we make a bet, when we execute, when things go against us, we have this natural mechanism to self-preserve our ego and attribute that to circumstance or attribute that to the failures of others, right? And if you realize that about yourself, that you have that ego preservation mechanism built in, um, you can start to take a, a deep look at what your weaknesses are and what your strengths are in a more objective way. Which Yeah, which it's funny you say that, those two things, because she talks about both of those in the book. Um, so the pithy description for the first one of judging a decision based on the outcome, just one outcome, sample size of one. In poker, they call that resulting. Um, and so it's like, you could play, you could make the right decision probabilistically, like 80% of the chance it's going to work out, 20% it fails, and then it fails, and then you go back and you're like, that was the wrong decision because it failed. But you're over-indexing on that sample size of one. Um, so I thought that was like a pretty cool, like pithy way of uh, kind of capturing that bias. And then, yeah, she talks about how uh, we actually do assign luck to everyone else's success, but then we assign skill uh, to our own success and really it's always a combination of luck and skill um, for everyone and uh, I think you get a lot I do think you can become a bit happier if you stop just like holding your like uh, if you hold out that everyone else is succeeding because of luck and you're because of skill and you're just like kind of being unfair to everyone it's a little bit better once you start acknowledging like oh if someone did something wrong or messed up maybe that was just bad luck on their part and then you know if i succeeded like you can stay a little more humble if you're like oh that was that was luck you know um and those type of people i feel like are more a little bit more uh pleasant to be around definitely i think this this um like this idea that you don't always have um if you have the benefit of like many iterations of games or many iterations of opportunities to make decisions and you're making a, a good probabilistic bet and then that's usually a winning strategy right but it kind of ties back to what we're talking about in, in psychology of money where um ultimately to be able to take advantage of kind of the law of large numbers there many many games you got to survive you got to be able to keep playing those games right you got to be in it for the long haul so if you're like a trader if you're investing, um, you shouldn't bet the whole bank on a single market setup, right? Because if you do that and you get gas, you get blown out, it could have been the right bet, but you never have the opportunity to learn if you're making the right bet because you don't have enough iterations for that good bet to happen. You just get blown out and you're done and you're dead, right? So I think that's another important thing to make sure you're applying this probabilistic thinking. Um, but, I, and, and I'm, I presume Annie talks about this, but um, scaling your bet correctly on a given hand, right? You're, you, you need to scale your bet according to your right. conviction. Don't they, in trading, they call yeah. it like the, it's like the Kelly criterion, right? It's like the amount that you can bet, like the, the maximum that you should bet 
knowing that you could lose it all. But if you keep betting that amount yeah. over the long run, you should make money given like your belief about the probability. I haven't heard function. that specific term. Yeah. I haven't heard that specific term, but like, like yeah. per perfect, per perfect. Yeah. Like perfect if you, right. um, if you knew an asset could go down 10% or 20% or a hundred percent or whatever, yeah. you know, a certain amount, like, uh, about say 10% of the time factoring in that probability distribution, the Kelly criterion says, Oh, you should only bet this amount because you want to, then if you bet a thousand times, uh, that, that amount that the Kelly criterion tells you to bet maximizes it. And so, yeah, you never go in with a hundred percent of, of your whole, of, of your asset base. Cause if you're unlucky, you could just, yeah, you get, you get wrecked. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, traders talk about that a lot. Like, like never betting more than 1% of your trading portfolio, like, like never putting yourself in a position just that, that risks more than one to 3% of your portfolio. Right. So even if it, even if you like worst case scenario, right, what's your risk? Um, that's how kind of sounds like what you're talking about, but, or actually I think what you're talking about is different. You're talking about like sizing it accordingly more so. I right? mean, I think what you're saying is just like a heuristic. It's like, Oh, no math. Just like never bet more than 1%. Right. Um, where this would be like, it would calculate whether right. that's 1% or 5% based on some made up probability distribution of the assets that you're betting on. That up. Um, yeah. Yeah. I saw, I saw this tweet the other day. Um, and somebody was like, if like, think about if like one of your favorite assets, like went to zero tomorrow, like what would that, what would that do in your life? Like, does that feeling, does, do you, do you feel nervous thinking about that? Then you're probably overextended. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, actually, I am. <laughs> actually, I was listening to Suzu last night and he was like, the reason why people are maxis, like Bitcoin or ETH maxis, is because they hold so much of it that it's it's just coke. Like yeah. they <laughs> like because they're yeah. they're so freaked out of if it getting going to like going down that they have right. to justify and, why it's the yeah, only thing trying. that's gonna win. <laughs> Which is pretty funny. Yeah, dude. Um Yeah. Uh for for the for for the listeners, a a maxi in the context of crypto is someone who's ideologically committed to a particular. Coin. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because I used to like when I first. Well, whatever. I don't want to get too into crypto. Maybe we'll do that on the stream after. But but yeah, I I do definitely. I'm thinking about this a lot in terms of um, in terms of trading. And, you know, honestly, I was thinking about it recently in terms of. Um, uh, like, like my work, like I was thinking like, okay, what's, what's a, what's a, what's the best, what's the most probable way for me to be financial, more financially free at least. Um, and it's not trading. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, what's the probability of me? Like, of like me making a million dollars trading from what I have now is like, it's 0.1% probably. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's kind of like adjust, adjusting accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, but dude, if you're if you're day trading, what's the probability you very much enjoyed the journey? I do love day trading. I'm gonna keep doing. It, I mean, I think uh, I don't think I'll ever stop. I think the big thing about books like this, and I put fooled by randomness, and like there's there's kind of a bunch of books on like decision making yeah. and probability that are interesting is just kind of taking away the concept that your decision doesn't completely de de determine the outcome. Um, and once you kind of accept that assumption um or belief like you kind of start changing the way you think about a lot of things right 
because it, it, it is an admission that everything's not in your control, um, which can be kind of scary. And also it makes, you know, the calculus for deciding whether something was a good or bad decision a lot harder, right? Like that, there's a reason why we use outcomes and we do resulting is because you see the outcome and it's very easy to try to then attribute blame. But to say, oh, this outcome happened, but it was actually only 10% likely that this outcome was going to happen and I still made a good decision takes a lot more uh, like kind of cerebral sophistication. Um, and so part of the book, she goes into, okay, if we know this resulting bias exists, well, how do we combat it? And she come, and she gives kind of a lot of like life hacks of what you can do. Um, so a lot of <clears> poker <throat> players, they will form groups with other uh, sophisticated poker players where they'll go over hands they played um, and they'll discuss whether a player made the right decision or wrong decision, and they basically won't say what the final outcome of the hand is, right? So then people don't know what the result is. They just, but they know the probabilities of the different hands. They're like, yeah, you made the right decision there. You made the wrong decision there. Um, and so they kind of fill, they form these like rational, uh, like um, training groups that help them learn more and like provide feedback um, that isn't susceptible to the resulting bias. Um, which is pretty cool, and then she gives some other ones. Yeah, so they sounds like they like they do that to kind of like fight that human, uh, that natural human tendency. Yeah. To to result. Right. So if that's that's really cool. And she, and she like said that. like she'll go give classes to new, like to new poker players, and she'll do this exercise, and they're like, okay, so what happened, right? And she's like, no, you don't get it. Like you you don't get to hear that, you know. Um, uh, which is super interesting um, because it shows how intuitive, like looking for the outcome to de decide on what happened, uh, to decide on the uh, quality of a decision. Right. Yeah. And also, I, I, th I think I, I go ahead. Go ahead, Trick. No, no, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, like poker is a very, it's a very um, sort of bounded game. Um, and when you get to the, into those groups to discuss uh, to what extent you were making the right decisions and incorporating the known and unknown information of the hand, regardless of the outcome, I think it's super helpful in that context because the game is bounded and the rules are known, right? Um, and it can be way trickier to do that in other contexts where there are more variables and there's just more going on, equally useful. Um, but I would argue even more important to find a group like we have here um, of lads who are supportive but equally critical of each other, right? Because we realize how important that is. But what you'll see is sort of this effect that um, kind of kind of an implication of the fundamental attribution error self-serving bias that when people fail to realize the component or the, um, the impact of luck or randomness in their fortunes, like to the good side, when they fail to look into that, they begin to attribute to themselves this sort of uh, mystic superiority, as if you know, they can figure out what's going on and navigate any scenario, and they keep getting it right. And they get it right over and over and over again. And that what that that feedback does is it leads to this overconfidence, right? 
And so you see people doing so well in their domains for so long, and then they grow this massive, massive ego. And then it's at that point that they tend to think they're completely infallible and they make one big bet that kills it all, right? And if they had a group, if they had a group to investigate um, their decision-making with, they'd probably be less prone to those kind of blow-ups, that sort of, um, yeah, that sort of infallibility I, comment. I think one heuristic you should have about not trusting someone is if they have an opinion on everything. Like if someone is going to tell you what they think is going to happen on everything, it's like, well, if something's out of their domain, you shouldn't trust them. So that happens a lot in crypto where it's like someone feels like they're a big personality and they clearly haven't spent hours like reading the code or like thinking about it. And then off the cuff, they're like, this is definitely going to fail. You know, um, it's kind of like if someone if I were running around trying to tell people, you know, what's going to happen in biotechnology because I'm a software engineer and they're like vaguely related to this concept of technology. And so now I need to have a com like an opinion on every on every field in technology, like that's absurd. And so when people are like, a good, like when someone says, I'm not sure about this, I haven't done my homework, then the things that they do say they have an opinion, I'm like, all right, like this person has like some epistemic humility and like strong foundation. And I think, I mean, Twitter's especially bad because people can just like shoot off opinions and people become pundits and they have all these followers and like they're responsible for saying things to keep their followers. Um, and especially like on the news, right? Like these people are just paid to give hot takes on TV. Um, but that doesn't mean they know anything, right? Like, uh, so don't trust people who say they know everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good heuristic. And honestly, as I'm thinking about this, it's, it's actually like pretty ridiculous. You know, just in like my daily life where I see examples of people who you know, they haven't even had that much success, but they already have that, like, that, that ego, you know, and it's like, man, it doesn't take much. Um, it's pretty no, crazy. It doesn't, the, the Twitter example is an interesting one too, because it's almost like, um, like consumers of, uh, Twitter information of like particular talking heads and their, and their tweets, like you're sort of, you sort of, there's sort of like this conflation of the size of someone's platform and the actual expertise or alpha they can provide, right? And it's like this natural feedback loop. Like the bigger the head is, the bigger the platform is, the more that talking head thinks that they can contribute valuable insight to domains outside their expertise, right? When I was on um, Shake and, and Shaney's podcast, something we talked about was um, there are all these health gurus that like health gurus that like to give advice, right? And these guys are like, super yoked and shredded and they're like the, the archetype of like david right um and you look at them and you look at their body as a proxy for or or you you tend to fall into this 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 bias that their body is a proxy for um them having expertise towards health and executing those steps so we should follow those steps um but often like the domain expertise of those super ripped guys it has to do with optimizing for like strength and aesthetics and not necessarily what you're optimizing for, which is a deeper sense of health, right? So it can be, I think it can sometimes be tricky um, when um, experts get traction on a given domain. What, they'll, what they tend to do is they'll go to the immediate left and right of that domain 
to things that are like tangentially related, like sort of like the biotech software engineering example, except usually it starts tighter, right? And they start to comment on these other little things and people are like, yeah, it seems reasonable. And then they get more clout and then they take more risk by going further and further from their core competencies, right? So as someone who is trying to get better on your own and someone who's, we're talking about science, right? Like outsourcing your interpretation of the world to others, like being super judicious about actually taking advice from the, the guy or the woman that has the actual domain. Activity. Yeah, health is also interesting because like someone could be super yeah. jacked because of genetics, right? And so they're very strong. And they and they can do other things right. that like make That's themselves a little stronger. But like there's already, their, their natural strength is already way higher than yours. And then you're like, you see them, you're like, oh, they must have done these things to cause that. But really they didn't. And so the advice they give to you doesn't even apply, right? And it's, so it's very hard to take effect and then trace it yeah. back to causes and then take those causes and apply them to yourself. Because the real cause might just be they're in a better part of the genomic lineage than you are, so you shouldn't even listen to them, you know? Um, which is like the fool by randomness thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, dude, there's... Exactly. Like, I, I actually <clears throat> I actually really like how this applies to health and fitness and because um, I know both TJ and I have gone, like, deep in kind of the into the internet <clears throat> seeing these gurus and stuff and um you know f like for me f for example like the f example i think of for me is like f my whole life it's been very easy for me to get strong and build muscle and i remember i had friends in high school who were the opposite and they would like ask me how to do it and i'm like dude like literally i just I, there's nothing special i do you know what i mean like i probably am doing less shit than you are and I just get better results and that's just how it is. And it's, it's not fair, you know? And I see the same thing for like weight loss, which is like, that's for me, that's the hard part is to like get lean. And a lot of these people online, like it's always been easy for them. You know what I mean? And so they're giving advice that, that for me, I'm like, man, I like, it just, I'd be hitting my head against the wall. Like this isn't working for me. Why not? Because look, that guy's like all these like shredded guys are saying that this works, but it doesn't for me. And it, a lot of times it's just because of your kind of your genetics like literally what what are your natural gifts um yeah so that so oh yeah so the example i wanted to bring up was like michael jordan teaching basketball like the like everyone brings up that example right or coaching basketball i mean like he was he was a terrible coach but he's the best player ever and a lot of times like the best coaches were like players who really struggled to get good enough to play in the league and were like barely good enough but had to like work their ass off and like learn all the different tricks to get by, you know, and become like really good at setting screens and like rebounding and passing and shit like that. Those people are often like the best coaches, you know? Yeah. It, it's interesting because this kind of comes back to like our whole, like our, I guess the recurring theme of just like, a, like how do you operate in the world and like know things when people are telling you what they know and like, how do you, how do you trust or not trust that? And usually with health and fitness, it comes back to experimentation. And that's kind of like your, that's your defense of against like, you know, just because some really strong person tells you or some really lean person tells you how to get stronger or lose weight doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And you should just trust your like intuitive response to what they're suggesting. Yeah. And the cool thing about health and fitness is you, you get to roll the dice like several times, you know, and that's what I always tell people is like people, 
I've had a lot of people DM me about like the carnivore diet or fasting because like I've, I've posted a lot about those things. I've made videos about it and it's like, I just tell them like, dude, just try it, you know, try it for a week. And like, if it doesn't work for you, then you just don't have to do it. It's pretty easy. Right. But I think it's interesting with other things like, I was just gonna say with other things, it's, it's maybe not as easy to like try as much and, and kind of see like different, different out, uh, strategies. So you, maybe you have to be more aware of the probability, uh, probabilities, like, <clears throat> like if you're deciding like what you want to invest your, you know, 20,000 in your 401k and like, you know, I don't know, you can't really, you can't really play the game several times, right? Well, over it, the course of a year, it's actually interesting you say that because I, I was thinking about health in the in the exact opposite way. Like I see your point that, um, you know, you should you should tinker with diets or exercise plans and try to feel intuitively if they're working for you. And if something works, give it more credence and lean into that more. Right? It's kind of like you know, not outsourcing expertise, actually playing and tinkering. Um, but I actually think for health, if, if you look at it more holistically, at least in my opinion, that's an example of the domain where you can't roll the dice over many simulations. If you think about a single simulation as being a single life and sort of the outcome, not super binary, but the outcome either being you have a long, healthy life or you get cucked early by some sort of pathology or disease, right? In that sense, like, you can't use the Annie Duke probabilistic strategy and run the Monte Carlo a thousand times because failure to make the right decision there like begets the ultimate demise of death, right? And so I think in the yeah, in the domain in, really in the domain of health, like people people like to bring up like all these little examples of, oh, like my my great uncle, he used to rip ten cigs a day and drink a six pack of Corona and he lived until he's 105, right? And you're like, well, like that's fine, and that's a fun anecdote. Yeah. But based on my understanding of the way health works, are there are certain uh, determinist, deterministic variables that either make you get got or not, right? Like genetic disease, getting hit by a bus, whatever. But there's a whole lot of stuff that you can do that makes the odds of your living longer a lot higher. And my guess is, if you looked at a selection of 100 individuals that did what your granduncle did, cranked cigs, had a six-pack of Corona every day, 19 of them got got, right? So I think health is a trickier one. And um, in thinking probabilistically, I think you're inclined to consider which games can be played multiple times, where you can make the 51% bet a thousand times. And which games you really got to be risk averse and ensure you're covering yourself because a wrong decision means demise. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in the, like I was, I was, I guess I was thinking about like weight loss or like, I don't know, right. fasting, right. let's say like, oh, like if I tell someone, oh, fasting is going to help your skin. But like, you're so right for life is actually one of the ones where it's like, no, you don't, you roll it once. <laughs> um, depending on what you believe, I guess, if you're reincarnated, you know, but yeah, it's like you get one, you get one fucking shot basically with this brain. I mean, I think that's why we this experience like evolved yeah. to have culture and like ideas and kind of like we tried to learn from people that came before us so we can better assess 
like the outcomes of our decisions, right? So we actually, you don't just like blindly go around doing things and finding out the feedback to your actions. Like you do that to some extent, but you quickly start leveraging all the culture that already exists, you know, the knowledge that already exists to try to weigh what you think the probabilities of your actions are. Um, and so you, yeah. I think it's actually closer to the situation where, you know, you don't get a chance to redo your action. And so you can just blindly try it, right? You're always trying to use previous knowledge and assumptions about what the best thing to do is. Um, that's kind of like the basis for people who are like into Bayesian statistics and reasoning. It's like you take your, um, you take your base rates and like the little things you're learning as you go to update, like your probabilities of what you think the best actions are. Um, which is pretty interesting. Um, let, let, let's uh, let's hop into to to some Bayesian stuff real quick. I think that's a super interesting lever for people, where I think a lot of people um, they they very naturally um, understand and identify with the idea of making decisions based on probability, right? Like that's a natural thing humans either do implicitly or consciously. And I think the, um, the extent to which you can make more decisions probabilistically, consciously, is also a huge lever, right? If you can start to pull things out of what Danny Kahneman calls um, system one into system two, or vice versa, un unconscious to conscious. But like this idea of Bayesian probability is even more interesting, right? And it's like levering up on a lever. So the idea of Bayesian probability, to Chris's point, is like you have this base rate, which describes the probability you assign to an outcome. And then as time progresses, things change, right? Like systems adapt and variables change. And you can update that base rate based on the new information that's coming in, right? And that makes you even more equipped to navigate the world or a problem. And like sort of tying back into narratives, I think there's a natural human tendency to be like an anti-Bayesian, right? Like new information comes in, the facts change, but you have your old probability and your old models that are really built into your ego and how you navigate the world. Um, and so you can be kind of combative to that. But it's really important to update those models to the extent you can, because it does help you. Um, it does help you get ahead, and it does help you hedge against getting got if you can be sort of that ruthless Bayesian. Um, and I was kind of talking about this with Crisp earlier. Um, I think stuff like this, um, like for me, it, it, it comes really naturally, probably to a huge fault. It's like very computational and sort of inhuman in a way. So people hearing this, they're like, I, like, I don't want to deal with all this mechanistic Bayesian bullshit. Like, I just want to live my life and enjoy and not like integrate probabilities into every question. But it's actually um, something I've been thinking about is I actually find it really interesting and compelling to do so, to assign probabilities to things, to update them, because you, you end up seeing some results. You end up, at least I think, I guess, I guess it's tough to get feedback on these things, but I think navigating the world in a more interesting way, and you end up seeing how your Bayesian updating um, and your commitment to that affects actual change in the world. And so you're in a way you're 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 making a game out of this probability assignment. Like you're making your life into like a poker game and you can see when you win hands over the long term and if you're progressing or if you're regressing. 
And so to gamify something like that inherently like enriches the experience, like it might sound ridiculous, but it's actually super, super fun. I think for humans, like if you can gamify something, it inherently gives it a value that something like way more um, like bland does not have. We like to game, we like to have fun. So turning this sort of mechanistic probability process into a game, I think can actually make something that is often viewed as like an inhuman, like non-artistic, very computational thing into something that's actually very playful and enjoyable. I think when you start getting like enough probability and uncertainty, that's when life is like, that's part of the reason life's interesting, right? Like if we really had this completely causal machine where it's like we knew where we are now and we would just calculate where we're going, that would actually be super boring. Like the reason it's interesting is that it could go all these different directions and that's like summarized in the probability, right? So when you make a life decision, you're like, you don't know because you make that life decision, X is actually going to happen. It's like, it could be X, it could be Y, it could be Z, it could be something you don't know about. Um, and you're kind of just acknowledging the inherent like randomness in life, which is, I think, um, like the cool kind of like poetic side of like being more like mathy. Um, yeah. One of, uh, another thing she talks about in the book is like, when you're talking about ideas with people, or events, instead of just being like, I know this, or I don't know this, you could be like, uh, I'm a six out of 10, uh, sure that, you know, carnivore diet's good for you. So you just start kind of like baking in, like, your own, like, epistemic uncertainty, you're like, uh, I'm a, I'm a two on this, you know, which means you have no idea what you're talking about. Or you're like, I'm a nine on this. And like, you do that with your friends, and that becomes part of the vernacular. Uh, and that now you're like training yourself to acknowledge the uncertainty and like all your opinions and, and the decisions you're making. I mean, that's part of the reason why like it's fun doing this podcast right now, because now this is something that we can work into our friend group, right? Um, and, and taking a step back to narratives, like, yeah, part of the way you break a narrative is to acknowledge that the narrative isn't right on everything. And you train yourself to be more, less susceptible to narratives to being like, you know, this narrative of Bitcoin or is going to be a maximal or is going to be like everything or you know, COVID is going to destroy the whole earth. Like I'm a one on that or I'm a two on that, you know, like when you start working in these, um, this, these acknowledgements of uncertainty and then you, you become a little more uh, protected against like a narrative just completely taking over your mind. <laughs> um, so yeah, I hope we work that into our uh, leverage group chat. I like that. Yeah. Um, I like the, it. sounds like the book had, has some like, it might be like, like this. You might've heard this for trading uh, too, but like, she, like no there's always postmortems and we would do this after at Amazon where it's like, you make a decision or like something bad happens, right? Like a server goes down and then because the server goes down, you need to write a postmortem on why it broke and then address all the issues. Right. So it's like a, a looking back on what the issue was. And that's also like that ties in with her point about resulting, right? Like after something bad happens, let's go talk about why. So she says a really valuable technique is pre-mortems. So when you're making a decision, before you know what happens, you write why you made the decision um, and all the things that affected and what you thought the probabilities were, and you publish that before. And so then when the decision happens, like you can go back and see what you're seeing when you made a decision, which I think is uh, super interesting um, too. Uh, I, I, see, I I, uh, I only listened to the uh, 
the Farnham Street, the podcast that summarized the book. Um, and all I caught, and maybe she was just summarizing, um, and this is redundant, but um, when she was describing the pre-mortem, she basically said that you would sit down before the decision as opposed to after result. And everyone was to think out, if you, you assume the initiative that you're making decisions about fails, right? It dies. And then you have all of the people that are in the group um, ideate as to why it failed. And that being sort of um, instructive beforehand, because what it allows people to do is, um, if you're doing the, the, the typical way, which is just planning for the future, right? There's like a, there's a group think, and there's a tendency for an individual not to want to be contrarian, especially if it's like, like the negative Nancy type, right? Like my dad talks about this all the time. Like he's a CFO of a small lending company, right? He's always, always the bearer of bad news, which is really just the bearer of reality, right? He's like, guys, this is all, this is all glass castles, and I'm going to tell you why. And he's typically right, but like, no one wants to hear that, right? Like when, is, it, what, is this in like when someone's ask, get, trying to get a loan and he has to go, look, this, this business is like... Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's a good example, right? They're underwriting, they're underwriting a new factoring deal, right? And it's a huge deal. Like, let's say like, you know, 50 mil in revenue they're about to underwrite. And then the sales guy brings it in and the whole team's so hyped on it. My dad's like, this is a bad credit. This is a bad credit. And if it goes, if it goes badly, it wrecks our entire portfolio, right? And we're underwater for the year. Like, no one wants to hear that. They want to, they want to hear about how this initiative is going to work. So what's, what's great about the postmortem is it allows people to be, it invites people to bring reality into the equation. At least that's the way I understood it. Um, in a way that the reverse technique, whether, whether postmortem just revisiting in a bunch of years or just being super rose colored before the initiative is, is unleashed kind of doesn't allow you to do like the postmortem to an extent. Um, it's like a pseudo learning opportunity, but you're kind of going to just make, you've already made a big mistake and it could be consequential. And I feel like it makes it less likely that you're actually going to change in the future because the thing's kind of already been done, right? It's not as exciting about as, as building a new campaign, right? Yeah. Postmortems are tricky. We did them at Amazon all the time. Um, and you can learn from them in the sense that like, if you make a mistake and really quickly after it breaks, then you're like, you can be like, Oh, I, like I shouldn't do these type of things because they, they lead to things breaking. Right. So that happened to me. Like I broke something, had to write a postmortem and then I realized, okay, I need to be safer and not make that type of decision. But on the, on the longer horizon type, like, uh, postmortems, they usually aren't as helpful. It's like some decision was made like a year ago or two years ago. And now this system breaks and we have to like talk about it and no, and no one's going to, no one can address it because it's just so old. Um, and so, yeah, postmortems right. can be useful, but um, definitely not always. Um, something kind of similar to premortem that I'm going through right now is like, you know, making a decision where to uh, like what to do next and where to work. And I heard, uh, I think I got it from Bology, but like when you're, making a decision on like you know a company or project to join you should do like a a bear case a, a bull case and a base case or like you know the most likely the best case and the worst case and you outline those and you look forward and you're like okay um i've outlined what i think the best and the worst case are 
And then you go th and eventually you use those to make a decision. And then you can go back and you can look at, hey, like this is what I was thinking when I made this decision. And you can compare what actually happened um, to the best and the worst case that you initially outlined, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and then like even writing down what those base, bear, and bull cases are, you can kind of start to feel out like, oh, this one has a really good bull case, but the bear case is like untenable. Like if this goes bad, like I'm not going to be happy with myself. Versus the other one is like maybe the upside isn't as good, but you know, if it fails, like I'll be happy, right? And so you start to kind of come up with these decision criteria where it's like, I want maybe your your rules for yourself are make sure that the worst case I'm still like uh happy and then once eliminate any uh potential options that don't satisfy that, and then after you've done that, pick the option with the highest upside, right? Um and so by, by starting to outline these different scenarios, you can come up with these rules about like how you feel like you want to make decisions, which is kind of cool. Is that, because um, I, I know, well, both of you guys have been kind of like, have gone, I guess all of us actually have gone through like a lot of changes in the past year. Um, is that, has that been a way that you, Chris, have like, approached what you're doing with yeah i mean and i think your time and for me career. definitely if i thought the 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 worst case was really bad i would just rule it out um i think you're looking for something with high upside just because like you're young and you want you know growth um but i think like considering yeah the base case and the bear case is super important like right now I'm looking to join this project where uh, they're going to have like a WeWork in Brooklyn. And so if I come join this project and it burns out in three months, right, that's the worst case. But if that were to happen, like I'll be in Brooklyn for three months, I'll have fun, like I'll get to experience a new city, I'll learn about like building on Solana. And I'm like, oh, that bear case is actually, I'll be super happy if that happens, right? Versus another project, it's like, it's fully remote, like, uh, I don't really meet anyone. Like I, I'm, a, I spend a lot of time alone. You know, like that bear case is a lot worse for me. So I'm like, oh, I'm actually gonna go with this one that seems riskier, but actually is not. It doesn't feel like emotionally, it doesn't feel risky because the worst case is actually still sounds like a lot of fun. Um, which I guess is interesting. Like we're talking about probabilistic thinking, and it sounds like it's all mathy, but I think part of it is also like very emotional. Like you. You come up with the scenarios, that's the probabilistic side, and then you you look inside for like your emotions, how you feel towards those scenarios, which is not mathy at all, right? It's just like it's very intuitive um and kind of emotional. Yeah. Yeah, it's half like it's like half logic, like hard cold logic, and then half go with your heart um, yeah. you guys hear me thing yo um yeah, i think my mic was off for whatever yeah. reason yeah i saw i i, I, just I, I saw i saw i was muted i was like I'm i had just muted you for a second because it was echoing it was very very totalitarian maneuver a lot <laughs> um what i was gonna say is <laughs> I, I like the 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 bare bull and um you know probabilistic most probable case a lot and what I think it kind of does is if you apply that to all decisions, especially big ones, right? Especially life decisions. 
Um, you're basically trying to find decisions where the risk reward, the payout structure is very much structured as a call option, right? Where in the bear case, I have a small amount of misery or none at all, or I'm just perfectly happy, right? Like pay a little premium. You, some of your value gets suckled away. In the average case, I do pretty well. And in the good case, I do amazingly well, right? So it's kind of applying a model to ensure that you're accumulating a portfolio of experiences that act as call options on life, right? And those call options, like to what Chris was saying is, yes, this is very probabilistic, but it's actually deeply emotional as well. And it's deeply human because those call options are sort of denominated. They're sort of measured in like welfare in satisfaction, right? So I like that because it, it can be hard to make decisions in life. Um, I feel like a lot of times people might let those decisions be made for them um, because they're sort of in a path or they have momentum or they sort of inherit objectives, motives, values from other people. But using that bare bull probabilistic case, um, it, seem, it seems right. And I think a lot of us do it naturally, but even to... to uh, sort of meet out those specific cases and assign probabilities to them. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will be like, oh, I'm going to come up with probabilities for all the possible scenarios. Like, the, how do you even do that? That doesn't even make sense. But within, like, the the bare bull base is just like a hack. You know, it's like, just come up with three situations. Very tenable. And then, you know, see how you feel about them. <laughs> you know, it, and that is, that's just a very, like, coarse way of thinking probabilistically which i like right um it's like seeing the value in thinking probabilistically but making it doable for like our non like we're not actually computers right we're like we're humans and we're irrational so it makes it a lot easier it's also tricky because like i think a lot of this podcast is predicated upon the fact that we will, in fact, drive benefit from assigning probabilities to things, which sits on the assumption that we can accurately assign probabilities to things. Like a counterpoint to the practicality of this whole podcast is kind of like what Philip T Tetlock talks about. He wrote a book called Super Forecasters. And he basically says that uh, humans broadly, for sure, but even domain experts, like prediction experts, are pretty bad at this type of stuff. And I think that's probably because we're riddled with biases, right? So you can, you can hack away at the little um, inhibitors to assigning accurate probabilities, like ensuring you know which biases you're subject to, um, ensuring you know how you're being influenced sort of outside of your conscious. Uh, but I think it's definitely worth saying that probability is very tricky to get right. Um, and so overcomputing is just another bias because it assumes your computation has value. Yeah, most right? of the time you do calculations, they're wrong. And precision, this is another heuristic, overly precise sounding arguments also probably aren't accurate. Like if someone's super precise, like they're like, there's a 52.698% chance it's going to happen. You're like, bruh, <laughs> there's no way you have an accurate number there, right? And so way more like coarser, like coarser thinking actually tends to have a lot more value. Um, and yeah, I think the interesting thing about thinking in bets isn't that you need to calculate really precise probabilities. It's just 
acknowledging the uncertainty in life, really. That's that's the value right there, right? It's just that you can't have complete control over what's going to happen and you don't know what's going to happen and then how do you deal with that, um, which is cool. I feel like we should. Yeah, and when I um, when I first read Fooled by Randomness, I had this kind of um, like I started thinking yeah. almost like nihilistically, like what's the like oh nothing I do matters like it's, it's all random, um, and I think I've talked about this on another show we did, but in reality, when you start thinking more prob probabilistically and you focus on the things you know you can control and you kind of set your expectations. Like you do the bear, I really like that, the bear bull base case. Um, then you actually end up controlling your life more. Um, so there's like letting the randomness into your life almost gives you more control because it's going to be there regardless. Um, like you're going to have that, what's it called, tail risk, like black swan event. Like that's always going to exist regardless of whatever you do. But when you acknowledge that and prepare yourself for different outcomes, Definitely. you actually end up kind of therefore having more control because you focus on the things that you like by focusing on the things that you can't yeah. control and letting the, uh, things you can't the you thinking in bets is ultimately about acknowledging cool. randomness and things outside of your control and if you only focus on things that are inside your control then you know it's sort of a sort of a stoic maneuver right thinking in bets is in that way a very stoic maneuver which begets a certain um life satisfaction as well shaker those are those birds in the background those sounds so nice just sucking a coke zero with some birds chirping on the levered pod yeah there's birds on my window bro. i think Come on, um, bro. you got I life figured out the evolution of this is like yeah, you man. learn that your actions cause results right and you kind of imagine your life as like just one stream of like you make an action and you cause a result and you envision it like that then you learn about this like kind of randomness and probability thing and you realize your action doesn't actually caught like guarantee a result right and it's like oh i have no like i don't have any control here autonomy and that makes you feel very nihilistic and i think the step you have to do is then instead of imagining life as like one stream you actually imagine like hundreds of streams next to each other right um and so you like you zoom out and you add this new dimension and you're like well if i take this action and how many of those streams does a good thing happen? And how many does a bad thing happen? And so then what happens is skill ends up being this ability to have good things happen in as many of the streams as possible, right? And so you can kind of imagine it like visually, like I'm trying, like my my craft as a person is making it so that, you yeah. know, there's a lot of simulations where things go wrong, but I'm going to make it so that as many simulations as I can, as I can control, go right. And then you come back to this, like, oh, I do have some agency. Um, and I think that's uh, that's made me feel better after kind of going through a similar loop of, like, not feeling like I'm in control. Yeah. Um, Naval has, like, a good riff about it, um, about the different kinds of luck. And I think he says the exact same thing. He's like, you want... You, you want to be successful in as many versions of the simulation as possible. Um, so it's like, what, what skills 
do you build? What connections do you make? What opportunities do you seek that, that guarantee the highest probability of um, success? Because, and, and, and I love that, like so many of the, so many of the books I read, like self-help books or, you know, motivational people I followed or whatever, like, you know, think like a millionaire shit like that. Um, actually, no, I never read that book, whatever it is, Millionaire Habits. I never read it, but just shit like that, right? You, it, it kind of sets this premise that like, if you do this, you'll be a millionaire or you'll, it's funny because a million bucks now isn't even that much, but like, you'll be rich or successful, right? Financially free. Um, and I think it kind of sets you up like, it sets you up that there's a probability that you're, that you, that you're not successful to, to some degree. And, and then you're like, you know, you're 50 years old and you're like, what the fuck happened? You know, like, I thought if I did this, it would be successful. I thought if I worked hard, I'd be successful. Um, and when you kind of take this like probabilistic approach, I think it sets you up. You're more likely to be successful, but you're also more likely, you're less likely to be like, to be disappointed if it doesn't work out the exact way that you expect. And it's just crazy. Cause I look back on my life and I'm like, man, I wish I understood this idea when I was younger. Cause a lot of the decisions I made would have been good decisions with this framework, but a lot of them wouldn't, you know, a lot of like risks I took when I was young is like the dumbest risks I could have ever taken. Um, and it's just like, man, I'm glad I'm alive and you know, not in jail. I've, I mean, I've, I've felt the same way about a lot of things in but, you know. my childhood. Um, uh, one of the, one of the biases I have and the weaknesses I have is I love risk. Um, a lot of different types of risk, but one of the types I liked when I was a kid was physical risk. I like to just Me try too. physical feats and usually, and this gets to the overconfidence bias, right? I did it over and over and over again, and I always got away with it. Never anything catastrophic happened, right? Um, and so I look back on that, I'm like, I should have gotten got. But that's also like kind of one of the beauties of, of being a kid, right? Like you're so deeply exploratory that you're not doing any of this probabilistic horseshit, right? You're not doing any bare bull cases. <laughs> you're just uh you're just living and having a rip and then as you get older then you know we talked about yeah. this before the ratio of explore to exploit changes a bit and you start to explore more tactically and you start to explore uh in ways that in ways that are more likely to deliver exploitation at the end of the rainbow as a as, i mean that's why they send young people in the war so no you know you i look i, I, you I look know? like well, they're they're all, yeah they're 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 also like they like, like fit the as old fuck, the know? old heads are just like <laughs> yeah. young people just love the thrill and like it's like we just send them out you know like, like let them go That's fight funny. they're hyped up you know and then like the old heads are just back there like oh I, like I'll send half of them over here I'll put the other half over here and they're just like playing chess <laughs> um, or dude. Yeah. Also, um, kind of a similar, in a similar way, like gangs will recruit gang members when they're like very young. Um, and part of it is cause it's like, oh, they want to make this part of their life when they're young. So they're used to it. But I also think part of it is like, you know, when you're 12, 14, 15, like you ha have no concept of like dying. Like you, yeah. you just, I are, think like, the counter argument so, to this whole um, thinking and best thing is that yeah, on most, and, a lot of kids are, uh, Talib talks about this is that 
yeah, like thinking probabilistically is good, but it's also good for society that people are just taking risk and doing crazy stuff that makes like no sense, right? So like an entrepreneurial endeavor has a low chance of success, but people do it anyway because they just feel like passionate about it. And then that accrues benefits to everyone else. Um, where if they were just like completely trying to maximize expected value in like in terms of monetary rewards, then they wouldn't do that. I guess that's also where the whole emotional thing come in comes in. Because entrepreneurs aren't just like trying to maximize money. They want like the clout and the status and like the respect and in and they like the thing that they're working on, et cetera. Um Yeah, they're also probably they, they they probably realize that they could take the route with the best monetary ROI and like the more secure route to riches. They're probably also yeah, like they're probably optimizing for different things, and they also know that they might deep down be like deeply unsatisfied with with the typical route, right? Like one of the, one of the things I think about in in this vein is like wh why like why do con men do what they do, right? Like if you're a con man, like that's an incredibly difficult maneuver to pull off. It takes like an insane lattice work of mental models and understanding of psychology and understanding of risk to be able to, for example, like like Victor Lustig sold the Eiffel Tower as a con man twice, right? Like he could be successful in anything he wanted to do. He could get it done. So does being a con man deliver you the highest ROI monetarily? Like maybe, but probably not. Like he could have gone and, you know, been in invest investment banking and then like, you know, retired like as Masayoshi Son, right? That would have been incredibly rewarding. Like a lot of folks, like when you sit down with yourself and realize like what makes you tick, like one of the things I like a lot is risk. So like a secure job where I'm not doing something that interesting that I'm being paid a lot for, like I'd be deeply unsatisfied. Right. So it's uh, all in the genome. There's no such thing as nurture. <laughs> I know. I'm kidding. It depends on the day. I go back and forth. You know. Yeah. Nurture is a Nurture is a narrative. Nature. <laughs> Nature is the only <laughs> is the base case. It's where it's where the narratives level out. Yeah, because then it's like because <laughs> then you're all like optimizing yes, for exactly like the risk experience, which kind of becomes weird. It's like, what's the problem? You know, like, because you can almost still fit that into like the bear base yeah, thing. It's like you know that you yeah, enjoy it's, it's risk, almost, so it's you almost, want it's almost like, ri like to risk, have risk associated with it. <laughs> risk for the you sake know? of risk has extra premium to me because it rile, it riles me up. Like it, like when, when I when I take risk, like there's something that happens yeah. in my brain. It releases chemicals. Dude, honestly, like me too. It's a high, right? So it all depends on what you're optimizing for. But the fact that I realize that I'm addicted to that risk. Is also yeah. another lever, you know, to make sure you don't get overextended and I scale the bets. The bear case is just not having yeah. any uncertainty. Yeah, man, I, I relate this so is monotony. much. <laughs> the monotonous bear so case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the bear case is security. Like driving. Okay, like Tej. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, the bear case is nothing wrong. Evans. like TJ, I know the way you drive right in your GTI and I, I drive like maybe half as risky as you do, but still I would say relatively risky compared to like the average person. Right. 
Um, and like, that's a good example of something that's like, it's just about, it's just about risk. And like, I guess the rush of like driving fast and switching lanes, like oh, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the benefit. Yeah, it's also it's like, like, it's just almost like pure risk for risk's sake. You it, know? It, 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 it is, it is illogical. It's like completely it, illogical a lot of times. Um, but for that, it's like, it's risk for the sake of risk, but it's also like risk. Like it's hard to imagine because everyone has their own conception of what's risky, right? Like the way I drive is objectively riskier than the way someone else drives. But I would say the way I drive, the risk I take compared to the risk I know I can dominate is probably similar to other people's ratios. Did also, thank you. Thanks so much for, for doxing me and raping my car. <laughs> I get what you're saying. Premiums, brother. Yeah. I mean, the real question is if you drive better, the real question is if you drive better going uh, <laughs> backwards or David yeah. Coleman drives um, better going he's forward. A great driver. It was a thought <laughs> That's experiment. Just a perennial debate. <laughs> um, I mean, what's the probability? Talking about is. thinking probabilities. What's the probability that Dana Goldman listens to levers? God, I don't. I, I think it breaks probability and goes into the negative range. <laughs> um, it's interesting. This is like our listeners probably don't care, but I think I became friends with you guys because both of you in college were like riskier than me and I found it attractive and like, I like the idea of it, but I'm not going to do it on my own. So I just tail along with you guys and I, I, I must do something on the opposite side for you guys <laughs> to make it a synergistic relationship. But it's funny to think about. That's funny. Well, I, I don't want to answer for TJ, but definitely for me, you were like much more outgoing socially than I was. Like I, I've like always been shy pretty much until college. I was very shy. Um, and that was what, to me, I was like, yes, I, I liked yes, about you. It was exactly like, you were just like outgoing similar. and like, which like to me almost seemed risky, which is funny. You know, Yeah, I guess risk is like, all relative. To me, it felt risky to like be thing. like a funny guy and like talk to random people like that I, felt. Yeah. Risky. And there, there's, there's, um, there's, there's like a, there's also just so like an funny. endless spectrum of, of domain. Yeah, which is kind of what Teach right? was saying. Like, like some of us don't even think about risk in some domains that others are like really, really familiar with. I would, I would answer similarly. Like, so A, I think, so for, for, for Chris, like you embodied social risk that I didn't have. I was more introverted. It's actually interesting, Hake, that you describe yourself as introverted because I also thought you embodied social risk, like when I was first getting to the house. Um, and then so the other lads I got along with, well, which like Max and Kravitz, like they did less of that, right? Like I appreciated them for different reasons, but you guys were like very like into the social architecture and always like bopping around, like talking, talking to different people. So I envisioned, I imagined that as, as social risk. But also for Chris, I think you think about yourself as, as risk averse but only relative to people you're very close with, the direct comps, right? And you're, if you're comping to me, that's like a horrible comp, right? Compared to average, you actually take a lot, lot more risk. We were talking to Ari yesterday. Shout hey, out Spilo. Um, shout out to, to, uh, to, shout out to Spilo. Um, and we're talking about this fact that um, one thing that we all sort of share and appreciate about each other is um, a willingness to um, bring reality or what we perceive reality to be 
to a to a situation where it's not politically correct or comfortable to do so. Like that's a virtue we all share, right? But that's a risk, right? That's a, that's a big social risk, and more so, that's a reputational risk, right? And that's a risk that um, that I imagine the both of you guys take frequently, right? There's sort of a um, a willingness to defend truth for the sake of truth. And it's not obvious what the payoff is there, right? That's not really a call option. It's maybe a call option for yourself or keeping true to um, your own principles. It's maybe a call option in terms of just like keeping consistent with how you update your Bayesian models about the world, which allows you to get, get ahead. But in those singular games, that can be deeply uncomfortable and a, bit, a, a big negative ROI. And I do that shit all of the time, right? But I think that's kind of, um, that's a risk we all embody. That's unclear how it returns to us in a single game. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, it's almost like calling people out, but not, but not calling them out, but just like being true to yourself and not like the risk is like, you make other people uncomfortable and you make them unhappy. Um, but I definitely remember in college a lot, like, it, like learning philosophical things and then like just telling everybody about them and being like, I kind of like, I mean, I don't know, like in a way, and I knew that, that they it would make them uncomfortable. I think there's a risk like that, well, there, or, so humans naturally you know, like whatever. heard or um, there's group think, which is really yeah, valuable I, when I the consensus is I right. And that. the consensus over time tends to be right. Right. Like at a, just because like it evolves over time. And so having people that go along with consensus is really good. But then the risk with consensus is that, you know, when new things happen in the environment, it get it's wrong. It's maladaptive. And so then I think there's a counter, there's a counter pressure where like certain people are like uh, by nature, just contrarian, just to be contrarian. And it's good when the consensus is wrong and it's annoying when the consensus might be right. You know, and so like that urge just to say something to be contrarian, I think it's like built in because somehow like the genome knows that you need people to just question the status quo. And if if you don't have that, then we'll like we'll just naturally herd into the wrong group thing. Or doesn't mean maybe being like trying to explain like <laughs> genetics what? in like a spiritual way, but I think it's important for people to to just question the consensus even though sometimes I can tell people get annoyed at me for doing it. I, I, I agree with most of that. But what I think is tricky about that is um, like the idea that you need for the vast majority of people, like a cultural consensus, which tends to keep coordination and move like humanity forward. The idea that it's genetically programmed to have some people that deviate, I think is tricky, right? Because it, feeds on the idea that genetic selection happens at the group level, which, which we know it doesn't, right? So I almost wonder if those individuals that by genetic design are contrarian, I mean, either they have other attributes that make up for it, and it just happens to be this idle part of their genome that has just stuck around, but it seems at the gene level, at the kin level, to be maladaptive across I mean, the board. I know, really. like, most people say... The... Go ahead, Zing.
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, I was just going to say, you know, I'm thinking about it like evolutionarily, which I guess I think you're kind of like alluding to it. Like who were the people that were going to explore new land? And I'm, I'm not saying like, oh, I'm, I'm that guy who was going to like find America or something. Right. But I just knowing myself, I would have been the one to like take the risk and like probabilistically I would have died, you know? Um, but I think that, I think that that's just like people like that stuck around in the genome because it's, it's maladaptive. Like you said, at the, at the kin level for like getting along with the consensus, but like for the speed at the species level, you need some of that. Um, and another point I was going to throw in is I'm looking back at all the episodes we've done and like at least four or five of them, I would say fit into this kind of, uh, topic of like going against the consensus. Like we talk about fasting like that is something that I, I talked about it with my coworkers and they all thought I was like crazy or like anorexic or starving myself. They're like, you know, you, you need to eat breakfast at least, or you need to eat at least two meals a day. Right. Um, talking about like NFTs and the metaverse, I think is something that a lot of people think is like stupid and it's like childish and it doesn't, it has no meaning. It has no value. Um, the red meat one is the other one where the consensus to me, it seems is that red meat is bad for you. Um, and we made an episode called red meat. Yeah, is literally good everyone. Right? Red meat. I swear so I that was interesting. That means that we don't just take consensus and flip it. Like there's a lot of things that I, I think the consensus on it, right? <laughs> like I think water is definitely important for you. I think, the, <laughs> I think the scientists definitely nailed that one. Um, I think in breathing is important. Uh, like I, I don't walk around naked. Like that would go against consensus, but that would make me really uncomfortable. Um, I could probably keep going, but those are probably my top three. Wait, that, that's consensus or non-consensus? <laughs> oh, another yeah, one is um, we kind of talked about like how the dollar isn't sound Consensus or not consensus? <laughs> from from what I from what I, I would under- say, that's like very. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no I I'm saying the that like, person like knows I think what on a average is. in America, like <laughs> they think the dollar coin. is like, oh, like <laughs> yeah. it represents value, you know? Not and we all kind of are like, oh, it's a shit coin. Mine. They don't. That's that's what I was gonna say because you have people like like tradfi guys understand inflation and like you know maybe they choose maybe they don't like Bitcoin but like they, they understand that the dollar <laughs> isn't like very sound, you know? So it's like, it's, I would say it's a consensus from what I can tell in like, like investment, you know, tra- like people who are successful in finance, it seems like it's kind of a consensus, but like for the average person, I don't think it's a consensus. I think it's one of those things yeah. most like even my, you know, I don't know some of my parents and family who really are quick, like um, well off. I, they I, don't I think that. we should play a game. And if you guys would think on it, like everyone, everyone asks um, what the probability of a given event is, and then the other the other lads answer what um, what their assigned probability is. So maybe we do that at the end. But I quickly want to make one comment and backtrack him on or slightly on what I was saying about genetic selection. So the idea that like t- the the guy that takes that big risk or is contrarian, it doesn't make sense from a gene selection standpoint, and it maybe makes sense from a group selection standpoint, which we kind of know is. It's, it's an illusion, group selection, right? 
But I wonder if um, it's kind of like hunting for big game, right? Like the odds that you catch something are super low. So maybe it makes sense to catch smaller game or collect tubers. But the payoff when it occurs is massive. So that hunter gatherers frequently each era would continue hunting for big game because of this big payoff because uh, it was energy efficient, right? So maybe there's some, some portion of the gene pool that has this genetic disposition to take big risks, like the guy that, you know, like, you know, Christopher Columbus or any explorer that the odds of success are so low, but maybe over many iterations, their gene pool um, or, or some of those genes just they tended to get those very rare but huge payoffs that somehow made it work for all of those that received the genes. Because the thing is, like if you're if you're like a like I don't know if you guys know the you know the classic um, question of like who is the most evolutionary fit human to ever live, and the proxy for that is the person that's committed the most genetic material to the gene pool. Like Genghis Khan, like commits his genetics to like. 10% of people, right? And so you're like, so what is Genghis Khan? Like he was a marauding, ruthless risk taker, right? And by taking that one risk, he got this immense amount of resources and was able to copulate with all these women, right? And so like, that's an extreme example, obviously, but like, I think the principles is buried in there. Like one risk allowed you this benefit, right? That allowed you to reproduce. So just just a thought, backtracking on on my previous assumption. So take risk, and maybe your seed will be spread to ten percent of the population. That's that's the rule of thumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie was like, "Babe, you need to take more risk." <laughs> well, oh, you know, actually. Um, Shaney was talking about something recently, which I thought was really interesting. So I, I guess this is something else. <laughs> no, she was, um, so she, I guess there's this thing with women where some women, when they're on birth control versus off birth control, they are attracted to different type of men. <laughs> and it was, it was the opposite of what I would have thought. I, I think it was. So when you're on birth control, it's kind of like s simulating that you have uh, a child in some way because you're not, um, you don't produce eggs or something. But when you're, whatever, when you're on birth control, you're more attracted to risky men. Is that it, Cheney? Yeah. Well, yeah. When you're on birth control, you're more attracted to risky men than when you're off. Some women, this happens to. And I, I think she said there's like some, some science about this as well. It's not just like anecdote. But um, the idea is that, like, when you have a Not child, when when you're pregnant, you want someone risky because, or not risky. It's not even risky. It's more like, um, it's like, what what dangerous. dangerous? That's what it was. Okay, that's what we decided it was dangerous because you want someone who's like dangerous because they can protect you. Like they'll mm -hmm. they'll kill somebody for you. Um, and it so it wasn't necessarily risk, but I think it kind of is risk to some degree, like, cause being dangerous, uh, especially being dangerous in our society now is it doesn't always provide uh, so much benefit. And it reminded me of what Jordan Peterson talks about where 
he has a quote that's like a good man is not a man who's not dangerous. It's a good man is a man who's dangerous, but is in control. Um, and I, and I love, I love that idea. Cause, and so I thought it was I interesting it was. that she, like she brought this up, <laughs> I guess it's it kind all of comes back to Genghis Khan. It's, it's, um, it's Genghis all the way down of the, the, <laughs> the Genghis actually Khan though. All right. Should we do our game? It could relate right, so, in some way. So let's do the game. Let's do the game. <laughs> okay. yeah. What's the crap? probability that Joe Biden is alive in 2024? Literally. <laughs> Everyone say their question okay. first. <laughs> Zero out of 100. What's the probability that you think Yeah, that he'll be alive in 2024? And so 10 is like... 10 is certain... I think it's a. I think it's like. <laughs> I think it's like ninety. Like, because I think that. Okay, what about do the probability that Joe Biden is shit to keep him alive? Like shit that we don't know about <laughs> yet. You know, like they'll fucking shoot him up. I'm, with I'm like hurting our potential of getting fucked. You know, <laughs> just crazy shit. Odds, I, I would say I would say his odds of being alive in 2024 75. I think I think there's a a chance that the stress of the president. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Well, this is another bias. You guys put your numbers out, so now I'm going to be anchored higher. And like I was thinking, like oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm going to go with eighty <laughs> percent. No, honestly, <laughs> I'm sorry, Joe. That was really disrespectful. Much respect. Don't don't send any like any of the FBI after me. <laughs> You know, it's funny, dude. I saw. <laughs> dude, I saw this thing on, I was watching Shark Tank and it was an old episode and they had some <laughs> thing where they, a couple of them went to this entrepreneurship summit at the white office, um, white house, <laughs> white office. Um, and it had Joe Biden, it showed Joe Biden for a second. And I was like, man, like. He oh just said something God. like really cringy, and I was like, "Man, he's so oh like old God, and cringy." Bro. And then I realized, I looked back, and it was during the Obama presidentship. It was like a really old ass <laughs> episode. And I was like, "Dude, that was like what, what was that? Like seven years ago or something?" You know. So I was just, it was pretty. All funny. right, what do you think like, the odds that are? Is an old episode, and you still act that right. at the turn of the next presidential office. <laughs> what? So what is that? Twenty twenty four. Yeah. Right. The turn of the next presidential office. The highest tax rate in the U.S. exceeds sixty percent. That what's that now? Is that forty? I think like na now. 60s. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's maybe it's not a great question. Like in in Calif in California, isn't it already like functional like fifty three? No, I mean, so you need you need a seven seven percent delta at the minimum. For this I mean, you're saying the top tax bracket. Is 60%? Yeah. I don't know. Like, I would say like 10%. Maybe five. No way. It's, it's not 60%. The top tax bracket is like 40%. I feel like in California it already is. No, 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 no. Because, because, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm saying all in. All in it's highest like, bracket. Like so 60, in California dude, right now, if you're I, in the highest bracket, I believe you're, no, like, you're wait, all you in. Your effective is like 3%. Don't quote me on that. So you need a you need a seven percent delta to hit the threshold. I don't know. I'm gonna go ten percent. 
Maybe five percent. I feel like I feel like they're not gonna raise taxes. Damn. Why would they raise taxes when they can just print money and debt? <laughs> like it's way more. It's like they can get. They can keep increasing. Uh, I mean that's super simplistic. I, I mean, yeah. Like there's a lot what of if rich they, what liberal people, right? Like that maybe would like raising taxes affects the median voter. Like that's a huge that really can sway your chance of reelection. You know. Well, well, but what they would do, right, is if like, we're talking about the top bracket, like the lower brackets will, could be insulated, right? They could do like a disproportionate increase for the top bracket. I mean, it's all in, right? So, so like, for example, like if you're below it, it of course, it affects the middle class if it's just a, right. a, a vanilla tax bump across the board. But my, that, that's horrible. Op, that's horrible democracy. I mean, it's horrible um, governance and optics, right? So what they would do is they would just take those earning over a million and they would crank their tax rate and leave all the voters. Yeah, I mean, they, alone, I mean if they I add think. a wealth tax too, like, I mean. On lu- yeah, or on luxury items or a bigger estate tax for wealthy people. Like, So so 10% for Chris, pick. That's a good, that's a good acknowledgement of uncertainty. 25? 25? Dude, I have no idea. Um, All right, I'll, I'll probably put it. Twenty-five percent. Damn, bro, you're moving El Salvador. Twenty-five percent is my guess. <laughs> you're Hell yeah, bro! It's from my limited. I already bought a place. <laughs> I bought a, I bought a box under a bridge you. in El Salvador. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they paid me to they paid me to shill uh, shill BTC and move to Bitcoin. All right, Hank, what's your question? They gave you a thousand sats. <laughs> um, what is the probability Damn, that so in ten years Solana will be the highest smart contract blockchain by market cap? Most active wallets. Or maybe okay. Let me change that. The highest, the, the largest the smart contract cap. blockchain with the most active wallets. Yeah, I think that that was a that was like a deliberate switch, right? Like, like there's a reason you 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 switched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because the market cap, you know, there's like with the deflationary right stuff yeah. with ETH. I mean, there's like different In factors. Years, but I just like the most used. I would say see what I'm trying to the smart contract blockchain. Yeah, that's a long time. I'm gonna say. So you're basically needing to say it's going to outpace ETH. So it's going to flip ETH Maybe and I usage, change it. and yeah, let's nothing else years. is going to come along this better. So it's it's the final it's the final iteration. It's the end game. Or or if it's by wallets held, right, right. It could depend on what the use case is, right? Like you could still have ETH being massive in terms of market cap, comparable to Solana but only big ticket items and transactions being secured there. Whereas Solana gets all micro payments or something of that nature. Right. So you like including like all the farmers and poor of the world. I would say it's 
fifteen percent. Yeah, I was I was thinking twenty. Right. Yeah. It's pretty low. That that's like what I was thinking. I was thinking like ten to fifteen percent, honestly. Yeah. I was thinking around there. Cause yeah, like to Chris's point, like the probably like, right, just okay, we really no covered all the are created, right? I would say probably, that there's probably play, higher. Play more games. There's going to be new ones. Um, yeah. What did he say? Cut out on me. All right, boys. Well, are we all? Oh, I just said we should play more games. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fun. Maybe we can start every episode like that to get in the habit of thinking bets. Yeah, what did you say? And because it'll be in the beginning of the episode, and more people are probably listening, we can make them less controversial. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Are, you, are, are we saying we should we should play that game, like the probability game, at the beginning of every episode, or a yeah. game that that fits? Yeah, the, I'm the saying topic. play the probability game. I would be down to play the probability every game every episode. <laughs> Fuck Boom, yeah, we're done. boosting our done. epistemic foundations here. I like that. Yeah. 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 Actually, <laughs> another one I was thinking of. Uh, what I was thinking of was what is the probability like just if you select a person at random what's the probability that they've listened this far (laughs) that was the other one I was thinking (laughs) I guess like I could probably check it right now I would say guessing I would say 10% I'll give a shout out to uh, I'll give a shout out out to to Philip Philip is a uh, a dedicated listener. <laughs> Much, he's a budding listener. He's budded. He's budded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. I, uh, I was I was with Philip yesterday. He, uh, you know, I tend to believe. Oh, you're him talking too, about Phil. He brings up little morsels from the episode. I'm like, that's a damn. Deep I didn't know Phil. We gotta get, we get Phil on here. What do you think we we could interview him? I on? love Phil. What's his, what's his leverage? Mm. Being uh, risk, risk, risk seeking, tall and handsome. Honestly, we could bring him on as like one of the disparaged <laughs> members of society and just talk being about handsome. How everyone's profiling him all the time. What's it like being Pretty very handsome. tall, dark, and handsome? <laughs> yeah, we could we could ask him questions about about how we should get we should get Spilo on here. He could break down um, airlines for us. <laughs> Yeah, did that that'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be fun. He could, could tell us how SeaWorld works. He was telling us like, yeah, at his fun, like people, people keep. He works as like, what does he do? He's an investor. Yeah, hedge fund investor. He was like, yeah, hedge people fund. get paid on how much they beat the alpha, and some people get to like cover tech and Amazon, and they're just crushing it, and he has to cover like airline and SeaWorld. Like, damn, how'd you draw that lot? That's that was like that's like when you're like thinking in bets and you just get the worst possible yeah, we, outcome and you can't retry. <laughs> you know, you're just stuck with SeaWorld. Yeah, we should definitely get Spielow on though. That that'd be fun. That'd be fun to have yeah. a proper finance chat. Alrighty, um, we really really meandered in this conversation. Um, so if you're one of the ten listeners that make it to this part. Thank you. Reach out to us. Give us feedback. Let us know your probabilities. Um, And yeah, maybe we can have a conversation with you.
Otherwise, it's been a lot of fun. Dude, you know what? Sorry, you know, I just want to throw it in real quick. I was literally spot on. I looked at our Guru episode at the end, 12%. I swear to God, I hadn't, Damn, I didn't, dude, well I'd never played. looked at it. I swear to God. I've never, I've, I didn't even know fucking, how to check that metric. And I just checked fucking and I computation fucking machine. On. Sam Hake, the TI-83 with the cannons. <laughs> Boom. Feed the pythons. <laughs> All right, everybody. Appreciate you listening. We'll see you on the next one.